Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. Today's episode features businessman Daryl Norgard, an accountant, serial entrepreneur, and investor based in Victoria, but having a global impact. He talks about his evolution from accounting to business ownership, approach to management and opportunity evaluation, analysis of the federal COVID programs, and much more. We hope you enjoy the conversation we had with him. Yeah, my name is Gerald Norgard, and I'm a, a partner with the accounting firm of Norgard Cradifil Professional Group. We have offices in Victoria and in Vancouver. Awesome. And can you talk just about how you kind of got in there? I mean, I went through the website bio and saw the, the KPMG background, but kind of how you got into accounting in, in general and how your career has evolved there? Sure. I, I um, started my career at Simon Fraser University in the business faculty. I was taking studies in business administration. And as you know, uh, there's lots of different things you can do with a business degree. Uh, but I remember some, some words that, that resonated with me from early on, accounting being the language of business. If you ever wanted to run a business later on, you better learn the language. And so I, um, I took some accounting courses and I found that I was reasonably competent at it. Um, so I took some more. And then at Simon Fraser University back then, I'm afraid I'm dating myself a bit, They had a co-op program, which was somewhat new at the time. And the co-op program allowed me to work in Abbotsford and Chilliwack um, as a co-op student. And back then, I worked in an accounting firm, which ironically became part of KPMG, but it was a smaller firm back then. And I worked learning sort of the business of being an accounting articling student, which basically means you do tax returns and you be a slave for for, for people that are more senior and smarter than you. But I worked for a couple of years doing that and, and really enjoyed myself. And, and so after, after my degree at Simon Fraser, I had the opportunity to either going back to Abbotsford, Chilliwack, where my parents were and I could stay with my parents or I could try to live on my own. And so I ventured forth and went to a company called Pete Maruk Mitchell in Vancouver. And Pete Maruk Mitchell subsequently changed its names 20 times or so, I'm joking about that, but became KPMG as we now know it. And then from there, you you went into your own, was it, I'm trying to remember what year it was when you went on your own there. Right, around 2008, um, in 2008, um, the opportunities at KPMG, I was the managing director for KPMG on Vancouver Island, or uh, the managing partner as we called it. And so I could either stay there or I could go to Toronto or I could try something different. And so at that time, I, I left. Um, uh, and so I, I decided to leave KPMG or I left KPMG and set up a small business over in Vancouver, a business in, involving cosmetics and skincare lines and got myself into a, involved in a few other venture capital businesses, if you will. Uh, that being said, I still kept my finger uh, in, in the tax area and helped a number of clients from KPMG days with questions from time to time. And so I may have served on their board of advisors or acted as a board of director. So I kept two or three clients and over the years, two or three became five or six and five or six became 10 and 20. And uh, there came a time where it became a little bit too much just for me to, to act that way. So I got involved and bought a small bookkeeping accounting firm in Brentwood Bay. Um, and so I had some staff there that could help produce tax returns and, and do work. And I could just help on the more complicated matters. And then 
over time in about 2011, I needed more help. And so I went to one of my colleagues that I used to work with at KPMG. He was now leading the tax group of an, another medium-sized firm in Victoria. And I asked Grant Craddifield to join me. And Grant uh, said yes. And so we set up Norgard Craddifield, the accounting company. And the company started with three people, Grant and myself and one assistant. And now we have about 20. That's awesome. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. One of the things that you you mentioned a, a minute or two ago was some of the, the different entrepreneurial ventures that you've taken on. Um, can you talk about kind of how that came about? I mean, you mentioned kind of the, the background in business. You want to learn the language of business as an accountant, but is that kind of, did you always want to be an entrepreneur kind of outside of? That's a great question. And, and the answer I think is yes. I always, I never saw myself as being an accountant in, the, in what we call the public practice of accountancy, working for others all the time. I always thought to myself, I might have my own business or, or be involved in a business. But that being said, I, I really did enjoy the practice of accounting and, and things went well for me there. I had some good luck on some examinations and won some awards and a few other things like that. So felt very comfortable in this environment. And one of the neat things about this environment is you get to see so many other entrepreneurs. So you get to see people that have successful businesses and you get to unfortunately see people that don't have successful businesses. So you learn a fair bit about a bunch of different things. And every once in a while, somebody comes to you and you say, holy smokes, I wish I could have either thought of that or maybe I'd like to partner with that person or become a solid partner or investor with that person's business because it strikes me as being a smart idea. And so what I learned early on uh, during my days at KPMG and also my days following uh, was to identify good opportunities and not just ones that are really doing well today, but good ideas. You know, somebody that comes with a good idea and has the passion and energy to make it happen. And so I started doing some venture capital, if you will, or angel investing, however you want to call it, where basically I would give some money or put some advice and help and time. So time and resources um, for clients or potential clients that I thought potentially had a good opportunity. And so that's how it got started. That's awesome. With a couple of restaurants. And I invested in a couple of restaurants, which I know sound counterintuitive for most people when they, they don't think they're necessarily uh, going to be the the easiest business and clearly they're not but if somebody's got passion and energy and can run it well it can be very successful and and some of those restaurants have now been bought up by the cactus club chain oh. can you is there any of the other businesses you could speak to a little bit i don't know i mean what you can or you can't i know there's some of the bigger ones on your linkedin with green sky i know there's a the cosmetics is that the glacier mud mask that's the glacier one? mud so why don't I talk about that a little bit and then I'll sure. move to. So uh, a friend of mine over in Vancouver, Roger Upton, um, was, was making, digging glacier mud from Northern BC, taking it to his garage. And in his garage, he was basically selling batches of this mud to potters. It was much prized because it was so pure and clean, free of the impurities that often you find in, in pottery mud. So uh, in some of the pottery magazines in the past, this, this mud was pristine and it was being purchased in large quantities. 
Well, Roger got into the back of his mind that if it was so good for pottery, it might be good for other things. And so he brought in with some help from, brought in some professors from UBC uh, and a few teams from down in Stanford and other places. And they came in and analyzed the mud and did all the testing from a geological point of view. And we determined that the mud would be quite useful for drawing impurities from skin. Uh, and, and since then, Roger particularly and the team of about 35 people over at Ironwood Clay Enrichment have come up with an award-winning product or two that we sell around the world. So we sell a lot of Canadian mud to China and to Europe and to the United States. And we sell not only the mud, but we also sell, quote unquote, muddy water, mineralized water, if you will. Um, and, and these are much prized in, in skincare and cosmetics, not only because they actually do work, think of the Dead Sea mud commercials and, and, and booths you saw on shopping malls in the past, this really does work and it works well with companies like L'Oreal or Revlon in their products. So Ironwood Clay rightly or wrongly made a decision that we wouldn't try to be a big name alone in the cosmetics industry. We would basically sell our product and our science to try to help formulate people's products to big companies. And so companies like New Skin or Walgreens or or Shoppers Drug Mart or Boots in the United Kingdom are all our customers among many others. And they buy products that we make for them in their name. So we're what you might call an OEM or original, you know, a white labeler, if you will. We have our own line of products called NENA, N-E-N-A, that's sold in some cases through Target and, and Costco's in some places around the world and also sold by agents in Asia and other places. So yeah, we run a we run a company selling mud from Canada around the world. And a few years back, I think it was um, four or five years back, we were lucky enough to be voted one of the Export, Develop Export Development Corporation's businesses of the year. Um, so we're very pleased with how things are going. And the pandemic has slowed things down a bit, as you can imagine, but but also in many ways, it's it's started picking up again. So we saw a slow dip from March and April and May, but started seeing picked up again in, in the summer of last year and things are rolling along quite well for us now. Wow. That's so cool. Such a great opportunity. I mean, I wonder if you could speak about green sky labs and even starting to think of, that there's some similarities. You talked about selling the science um, behind it. And I know, I mean, we just, I know a little bit about it. I went through the green sky lab site, but could you kind of speak to how that came about? Cause you're a little bit like pre-legalization as, as I remember, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, that's a great question. And Green Sky Lab was another one of those situations where a client came to us and said, we need some help on certain matters and we can help in tax and accounting and others. And the idea, what, what we did, I think, was was unique and innovative for them. And they felt impressed enough by our work to ask some of our team, myself and one of my colleagues, to basically join them almost full time. That was a hard decision, but this was an exciting enough company that that myself and a colleague, Stephen Gates, left our company, the accounting firm. At least we left it largely full time and we went to Green Sky Labs. And Green Sky Labs started its career, if you will, it started its operations in 2014, uh, looking for one of those growing licenses for cannabis. Um, and back in 2014, those of you that, are, or those of listening may know, they weren't easy to get. The government of Canada was putting up all kinds of roadblocks making them expensive to get. 
the rules were you had to be big to get them. You had to spend a million dollars plus in security planning and all kinds of fancy regulatory reports. So we spent a fair bit of time and energy in putting together a plan for a growing facility up in Kamloops. But as we were doing that, we started acquiring scientists. We brought in scientists that were smart on biochemistry and scientists who were smart on biology and scientists that were smart on, on plant genomics and other things like that. We added that to the roster. And as you pointed out, what we decided, what we determined, I think, at the time was that the marijuana plant and the hemp plants that had amounts of CBD or THC in them offered certain cures. They offered cures for pain and other things like that. But the doctors and the general physicians weren't, weren't so accepting of it, primarily because you never know what you're going to get when you're buying it from some guy down the street out of the back of their car or something. You never really knew if it was pure. You never knew if what you bought yesterday would be the same as what you might buy in three or four or six months. And so the doctors were understandably concerned about not um, prescribing to a bunch of patients something that they never really knew what might be the case or what, what might be there. So what we tried to offer through our, our Green Sky Lab science programs were purity of product, purity of, of, if you will, the CBD and the THC. And so that led to a couple of different techniques called isolation and extraction, where you can isolate the molecules in, in the cannabis plants or the hemp plants. And nigh on 500 or so molecules in those types of plants, only certain ones probably are most effective. We know of THC, we know of CBD, but there's lots of other ones. And so what we tried to do is come up with a technology that you could pull those molecules away from the plant in a scientific setting and then recombine them in a way that would best match with the patient's needs. So if a patient with back pain needed so much CBD and a little bit of THC and a little bit of CBN and et cetera, CBG, we could try to match that into a, a pill setting or a cream setting or something along those lines. So Green Sky Labs, as it grew, became more and more focused on science and less and less focused on growing. It wasn't really important to us for growing uh, the um, cannabis plants or the hemp plants. And so quite frankly, we sold off the growing license that we had, but we kept the lab license, one of the first in Canada to have a lab that could do scientific research uh, on, on, on the plants. And so we kept that lab in Victoria, built it out. And together with that lab in Victoria and the National Research Council back East, uh, we came across a lot of interesting discoveries. Topic for another day, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, that's crazy. It's and and quite frankly, I mean, in light of how the industry has gone, it it's worked out really, really well for you, just with all the consolidation and the volatility that's happened for producers. So um, that's great. Just a, a quick general question on kind of your entrepreneurial side. You talked about opportunity evaluation. Two of the things you mentioned are about the science, and I don't know if that's. Maybe if you could elaborate on kind of how you do evaluate opportunities, are you going straight to the financials? Are you, do you have to use a little bit of intuition? It's a combination there. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and as you can imagine, just one second, sorry. As you can imagine, um, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, we, we have um, situations where I would say you have to look at really three factors. You look at the idea and the opportunity. 
um, how good is the idea and how big that opportunity could be. And then you look at the team and you look at the people that are behind them, knowing full well that this is a startup possibly or just getting going so you can always bring other people in. But are the team behind it passionate, smart? Do they have the ability to do this? I think in the venture capital world, people would look at that and say, we, we score most of our investments based on how likely it is that that team can do something. Can they make it happen? Have they made it happen before? So the idea, the opportunity, and the team uh, are the key things that I look at. And you're right to say there's a little bit of intu in intuition there, but quite frankly, not necessarily. I haven't even at this stage really looked at the financials because as you're starting things up, all the financials are really just a, a scorecard of what you've spent today. And that could be nothing because you've done it out of your garage, like how Ironwood Clay got started. Or it could be a lot because you're spending money on fancy cars and other using other people's money to basically bolster your lifestyle. So that matters. The financials matter. But what matters more is the team that you put together and the idea that you have. And, and of course, we look at the last point, which is what's the deal? Is it fair for us to get in now? When I say us, I mean myself and some of my colleagues that I might bring along as a syndicate. Is it, is it a fair thing for us to come now? And can we add value? Can we add not only some money, but can we add some expertise in my particular area? That would be in tax and regulatory matters, like complicated areas like selling overseas and protecting intellectual property and so on. But really, it's those three factors. It's the, the, the opportunity, the idea, and the people. Cool. Yeah, that's it's it's very helpful um, to kind of understand your thought process there. Quickly jumping to your um, the accounting side, you we talked about this a little bit when you uh, when we first started the call. But with Corona, is there anything that has surprised you um, in maybe how businesses or government has responded uh, to the impact or sorry to the to the disease? Or uh, I think yeah, that's that's an interesting question, and I, I would say. Uh, like we have the we have both the the burden, but also the pleasure of watching what other countries are doing at the same time. So we know what the U.S. was doing for programs because we have some clients doing business there. We know what Europe was doing for programs because we have some clients there. I think the Canadian government has done as good a job as it probably could have in the early stages. It may be failing in a, a few ways now, but without getting into the politics at all, it was it was a pretty crazy period of time there. And there was an important need to basically keep companies buoyed up, keep companies alive. And, and one of the things the government did, I think, very well was that CBA loan, the Canada Emergency Banking Assistance, if you will, where they basically gave every company forty dollars to $60,000. That was a legitimate real company operating. And, and they made that happen pretty fast and without a burdensome red pile of red tape and so on like that. It came pretty easily. It was, it was directed through the banks. Now, I haven't, I haven't had to be on the side where the government is looking to try to track down fraud and so on like that. But I think for the most part, that worked very well. The, the requirements to get into the program, you had to have payroll um, for people the year before. You had, your company had to be around for a while. That, to my mind, was an emergency lifeline that helped many companies very quickly. Um, what hasn't been so good, I'm afraid, is helping other companies that deservedly need help. The programs and, and the rollout of programs for 
companies like in the transportation sector or companies in the restaurant industry and others, they've been slow. Programs for companies that were involving consultants that may have hired staff, but didn't necessarily meet the initial uh, initial requirements of the SEBA program. Um, th there's a program called the Regional, Re Regional Relief Program, RRRF, which kind of tries to mirror the, the $40,000 to $60,000 loans to companies, but boy, it's slow. Um, we've got clients that put in applications and wait three or four months before they get an answer. We had one client that put in an application, um, took about three months before they got a response. When they got a response, they had four days to deal with it. Uh, and they weren't even around that particular weekend. So the four days meant that they didn't respond in time and their, their assistance was canceled. So the government, I think, has done a spotty job. Some programs very well, some programs modestly well. I think in all fairness to them, they've been overwhelmed and they're afraid of fraud. They're afraid of being caught out and, and reading about some of these stories you read about in the United States where people took millions of dollars and bought Ferraris and things like that. And I understand that, but there comes a time when you have to move faster and rely on the judgment of your people on the ground. Um, and those people, I think, are relatively smart and can figure out whether something's real or not. So I would yeah. say generally pretty happy with the programs and, and the breadth of different programs for landlords and small businesses to big businesses. Yeah. Awesome. Last couple of uh, questions here. They're a little bit more on the personal side for professional development. I mean, obviously as a CPA, there's a lot of requirements for you there outside of that. Are you kind of an avid reader? Do you look for, to take on new certifications? I see a lot of finance guys, with, you know, the whole alphabet behind their name. Is that, can you talk about kind of your pro, pro D approach? By all means, um, for, for a bunch of years in my early days, I would teach teach tax classes at UBC or UVic or other places. And so I, I did a lot of that kind of work. And I did, uh, as you would put it, run around and add more initials behind my name. Some of them that I don't carry anymore, but I did do that. And and I enjoyed, I enjoyed some of that. Right now though, I'm an avid reader. I, I probably couldn't get by without The Economist magazine that keeps me up to date with what's happening around the world. Although I must admit when it comes every week, it gets a little daunting sometimes. Uh, and I pass it around to my colleagues in the office here so we can know what's going on in other countries. Um, in the world of tax, things change every quarter, basically even faster than that sometimes. And so trying to keep up with US, Canadian, UK taxes can be a daunting task. So we get lots of information that way. And then because we're accountants, we keep up with accounting rules and accounting changes. So I do read a lot of finance and, and uh, you're absolutely right. I keep, I keep in touch with that through podcasts or through magazines, the accounting magazines for association and, and both by attending or being the presenter of different topics for um, accounting and tax lectures. Awesome. Uh, best personal advice that you've received? ideally that would kind of lead you in your career? Long, long time ago, um, was working late in an office in Vancouver. Uh, I was working on a file for a company owned by Jim Patterson um, in Vancouver. And Jim Patterson came by um, late at night, saw myself and a couple other colleagues working there. And, um, and it was snowing up, I think, ironically, just like it is now. And looked out the window and 
and he, he was kind enough to ask if any of the accountants, because we were all quote, quote unquote, the young kids. One of, one of our bosses was there and, and Patterson knew the boss. He didn't know us really from Adam, but he knew we were all working hard on his stuff. And so um, asked if anybody needed a ride because it was snowing. And uh, most of us didn't. Uh, he looked around and said, what's your car, Daryl? Or he didn't know my name, but what's your car? And I pointed out my crappy little Honda Civic and said, he looked at that and kind of chuckled and said, good, nobody likes a flashy accountant. I love so we'll that. Have the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris. Awesome. Yeah, and, and very, <laughs> that's great. Um, last one I have for you is favorite restaurant in Vancouver Island. Well, I'm biased because I used to own part of it and, and you might know this, um, but um, Shelter Restaurant up in Tapina. Um, and so that was one of my investments with some friends of mine and, and Shelter and, and prior to Shelter, there was a restaurant or two owned by the same group, myself included down in Victoria, but Shelter Restaurant Tapina, super good. Awesome. Thanks for stopping by From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. If you want to learn more about the interviewee, please check the web and social links provided in the video or listening platform description. Please send any feedback to info at businessexaminer.ca with the subject line podcast. We'll see you next week.